Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 29, verses 15 through 35. Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a great feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to another son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to yet another son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Natalie. Isn't she great? Good morning, Antioch. My name is Linda, and I'm the family pastor here, which means I get to spend a lot of time with the kids and teenagers at our church. But this morning, I'm excited because we get to spend the morning together. We are continuing our study through the book of Genesis, and we have quite the story to dive into this morning. But first, let's do a quick review of where we are. As we've talked about, the story of the Bible can be broken down into a six-act play. In Act 1, God creates the world, and it's incredible. In Act 2, sin enters the world, and everything starts falling apart. But thankfully, this is not the end of the story. Act 3 zooms in on one particular family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the family whom God has chosen to redeem the world and everything in it back to himself. This is the family that eventually Jesus will be born into. 
Now, you might assume that as God's chosen family, they would have their act together. But as we've seen, this family is a mess. Their history is full of things like deception, hatred, rape, murder, slavery, and even war. This is not a model family. But they are the family that God chose to be his people. And their sin and dysfunction proved to us that no matter how broken, backwards, and messed up we get or the story gets, God will never stop pursuing his people with a never-ending, unstoppable love. And today's story shows us the same thing again. So grab your Bible and open to Genesis 29. So far in Genesis, we've had a lot of stories about brothers. We've had Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. But today, our story is about two sisters. Their names are Rachel and Leah. And in Genesis 29, there's a mister who comes between these two sisters. uh, Here's what we're told about them in verse 16. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So Rachel is the younger of the two sisters, and she's the pretty one. We're told she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. But before you start stereotyping her, you should also know that in verse 9, we're told that Rachel is a shepherd. So she's not some bimbo. She's a hardworking farm girl who happened to get the good looks in her family. Leah, on the other hand, not so much. We don't know exactly what it means that she had weak eyes. It might mean that her eyes are abnormally light in color. It might mean that she was visually impaired and couldn't see very well. Or it might mean that she had crazy eyes and looked a little strange. But whatever it meant, Leah's weak eyes made her the less attractive, the less desired of the two sisters. So that's who Leah and Rachel are. And somehow these two sisters end up in a strange love triangle with the same guy, their cousin, Jacob. Last week, Pete introduced us to Jacob, Esau's less hairy twin brother. A few years have passed, and now Jacob is 40 years old. And after stealing the family's birthright and blessing from his brother, Jacob flees town and heads off to a distant land. Eventually, tired and thirsty from traveling through the desert, he comes to a well, and he stops to get a drink. And there at the well, Jacob sees Rachel for the first time, this drop-dead gorgeous shepherd girl who's there to get water for her sheep. Now, I don't know if Jacob has ever talked to a girl before or what, but here's what, he's, here's what he does. Look at verse 10. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. So Jacob sees this beautiful woman and decides he's going to impress her. So instead of grabbing a couple of other shepherds to help him move this huge stone from the top of the well, Jacob kisses his biceps and then grunts and strains and he rolls it off by himself. Then, feeling pretty proud of himself, he walks over to Rachel and he makes his move. Verse 11 says, Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Right? This is ridiculous. This 40-year-old man covered in dust from running 500 miles through the desert, sees
sees a pretty girl at the well, tries to impress her by moving this huge rock, then walks over, kisses her, but gets so overwhelmed that he starts crying. This is so awkward, I can't even imagine it. It reminds me of my freshman year of college at Moody Bible Institute. There were a bunch of sheltered missionary kids who'd been homeschooled and apparently had never talked to a girl before, but they went to Bible school to get their MRS degree. Now, my dad had warned me about this, but I thought he was joking until not one, not two, but three different guys proposed to me without even asking me on a first date. (laughs) That is why they called it Moody Bridal Institute, ring by spring or your money back. Um, I imagine Jacob had that vibe in this story. Just totally awkward, intense, and immature. Side note to all you teenage boys, this is not how you ask a girl out. This doesn't usually work. But the funny thing is that apparently it worked for Jacob. This isn't what I would have been looking for, but Rachel isn't freaked out. In fact, she brings Jacob home to meet her father. And Jacob hits it off with her dad, his uncle, Laban. Laban tells Jacob he can stay with him for a while if he wants. But after a month, Laban realizes that Jacob doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And all he wants is to marry Rachel. But Jacob's not really in a position to take a wife. You see, he's broke as a joke, and he has, all he has are the clothes on his back and his walking stick. So... Laban and Jacob make a deal that Jacob will work for Laban for seven years. And in exchange, Laban will let him marry Rachel. So that's what Jacob did. In verse 20, we see, So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Come on, Jacob. You don't need to be that cheesy about this. We get it. You're so in love with her. But Jacob does it. He works for seven years, twice as long as was customary at that time, so that he could marry Rachel. Seven years pass, and sure enough, the wedding day has finally come. The entire town comes to celebrate Jacob and Rachel. Everything is going great. The vibes are strong. The bride looks like a million bucks. The food is amazing, and there's great drink and dancing. Everything is perfect. Then, while the party is still going, Jacob and his new bride slip away from the crowd. He takes her back to the tent, and they enjoy their wedding night together. But here's where the twist in the story comes in. In verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why did you, why have you deceived me? So, the morning after the wedding, Jacob rolls over in bed and starts snuggling the woman next to him, then opens his eyes to take in his beautiful new bride. But to his shock, there's Leah with her crazy eyes and her morning breath. (laughs) Obviously, it must have been really dark in that tent the night before. Or maybe Jacob had had a little too much to drink at the wedding and had his beer goggles on. But either way, can you imagine the surprise? So Jacob puts on his bathrobe and he marches out of the tent to track down Laban. His father-in-law has pulled a fast one on him. Laban was the one who somehow disguised Leah and sent her into the tent with Jacob. 
What's interesting is that if you remember, Jacob is something of a con man himself. But now the trickster has been tricked. The deceiver has been deceived. And Jacob is furious with his father-in-law. But Laban replied in verse 26, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. So Laban makes Jacob an offer. Now that you've married Leah, work for me for another seven years and you can have Rachel too. Even though he'd gotten ripped off, Jacob is so smitten with Rachel that he agreed to work for another seven years. So Jacob finally marries Rachel and now he has two wives, sister wives, the, women, the woman that he loves and her less attractive older sister. This is obviously a recipe for disaster. It's interesting that later on in Leviticus, the Israelites have a law that says, while your wife is living, do not marry her sister and have sexual relations with her, for they would be rivals. I think there's a good chance they made this law after hearing the story of Rachel and Leah, because that's exactly what happens. These two sisters become rivals, and things get especially complicated when babies come into the story. Verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. So after all the drama that led these two sisters to marry the same man, Jacob loves Rachel, but Leah is not loved. Not only was she less beautiful than her sister, not only had her father deceitfully gotten rid of her, she is unloved by her husband, she's a debt to pay off so her husband can sleep with another woman. And her little sister, the beauty queen of the family, is the one he's in love with. Can you imagine the pain of it? But it's here in verse 31 that God is mentioned for the first time in this story. God sees that Leah is unloved, so God shows her favor and enables her to have children. Now, Leah eventually has seven babies, but our passage today focuses on the birth of her first four. I want to spend a few minutes looking at the names Leah gives to these babies and what those names reveal about what is going on inside of her. We'll see that amid all the rejection, rivalry, deception, and pain, God is at work in Leah's heart, revealing himself and developing her into a woman of strength conviction, and joy. So let's meet Leah's first four babies and see what they teach us about the story of her heart. We read in verse 32, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Leah names her first baby Reuben because in Hebrew, the name Reuben sounds like the word for misery which isn't a very cute baby name. Can you imagine what it was like to introduce her new child to her friends and family? They ooh and they ah, then they ask, what's his name? And she said, misery. This is where Leah is. She's miserable. She's the third wheel in Rachel and Jacob's marriage. Her husband doesn't love her. 
she's miserable, but she's hoping to have a baby and that this will change things for her because she lives in a culture where women become more valuable when they bring children into the world. So she's counting on this baby to change her miserable existence. Surely her husband will love her now, right? But Reuben is born and nothing changes. She's still miserable. Then in verse 33, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, she gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. She names her second child Simeon, which in Hebrew means he hears. This is the longing of Leah's heart. She longs to be heard. Have you ever felt unheard? It's one of the most dehumanizing experiences. I heard someone say that being unheard feels so much like being unloved that the average person can't tell the difference. Or to say it the other way, being heard feels so much like being loved that the average person can't tell the difference. But Leah is unheard and therefore unloved. So she calls her child Simeon. He hears, hoping that after bearing Jacob two sons, he might finally notice her and love her. But he doesn't. Then in verse 34, again she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. After giving birth to her third son, the baby is placed in her arms. She names him Levi, which means attached. Leah longs to be attached. She's tired of being alone, isolated, and abandoned. With each baby, she hopes her husband will finally love her, that he will see her, that he will love her, and that he will attach himself to her instead of her sister. But after birthing three boys, she's still alone, unwanted, and unloved. Now she has these three kids whose names mean, I'm miserable, my husband doesn't hear me, and my husband isn't attached to me. It must have been an awkward mom moment when she went to sign them up for school. You named your kids what? <laughs> These names are heartbreaking. They tell a story of a woman whose only hope is to win the love of a man who doesn't want her. But then Leah gets pregnant for a fourth time. And this time something's different. Something happens in Leah between the births of her third and fourth sons. We don't know what, but something changes in her. Verse 35, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. She names her fourth baby Judah, which means praise God. Instead of a sad and depressing name like her other children have, Judah is a name of hope, gratitude, and joy. Again, we don't know what changed in Leah between her third and fourth kids, but in naming this baby Judah, she is celebrating that she is no longer stuck in the cycle of pain and discontentment that has marked her life for years. She says, this time, I will praise the Lord. Do you know that Leah is the first person in the Bible to praise God? 
She's the first to experience such overwhelming contentment and joy in God that she rejoices, not just for what God has done, but for who God is. Somehow, in the midst of her loneliness and despair, God meets Leah in a way that changes her forever. See, nothing about her circumstances had changed. She didn't win the lottery or witness a miracle. She still got her crazy eyes. Her stupid husband is still oblivious to her, except in bed. Nothing has changed around her. Instead, something has changed in her. She's experienced God in a way that meets the deepest need of her soul. She thought that by having more kids, she would finally find the love of her life and that her deepest desires to be loved, to be heard, and to be attached would be satisfied. But eventually, she realizes that neither her husband nor any other person could ever truly satisfy her. She finally saw that only God was enough. By the way, I know that some of us here today know exactly what it feels like to be Leah, to feel unwanted, unknown, or unattached, especially those of us who are single and don't want to be. I also know that the church isn't the easiest place to be unmarried, with all the couples and the families and the weddings and the child dedications. If you're single, I want you to know that you are seen and you are loved. Not only are you wanted in this family of God, but you are needed. You're not second class here. The Bible has a very high view of marriage, but I would argue it has an even higher view of singleness. So I hope you can take comfort in knowing that even though technically Leah was married, her value and identity weren't based on another person, but on being heard, understood, and loved by God. So God loves Leah. God hears Leah. God is attached to Leah and will never leave her. And when she realizes this, she praises God. See, the turning point in this story is not when Leah finally gets what she wants. It's when she realizes that she has had it all along. We, not, we might not put our hope in the same things Leah did, but we're all prone to do this in our own way. We might be looking to that next promotion at work or that solution to a health problem. It might be that car or that house or that spouse we hope will finally cause us to feel satisfied. Because deep down, we're all Leah. We all do this. We all look to something or someone for approval and worth and end up disappointed and miserable until we look to God to satisfy our deepest needs. So what is that thing for you? What is that thing that teases and tantalizes you and makes you feel like you need it or your life will be miserable? Because just like Leah, the turning point in our story is not when we get what we want. It's when we realize we had it all along. And when we, like Leah, lean into God's love for us, like really lean in and let it shape who we are and how we live, we will find that we can praise God too, 
even when our body doesn't look the way we want it to, even when our family of origin has hurt us, even when our relationships fall apart, even when life isn't going the way you've imagined. God's love for us is big enough to hold us no matter what happens. I know because it's happened to me. I actually have a special connection with this story. Most of you know, just like Leah, I also have a son named Judah. What you don't know, though, is that we chose his name for the exact opposite reasons of Leah. See, Leah was a young married woman desperate to have kids. But when Travis and I first got married 15 years ago, I was terrified of the idea of having kids, especially the boy kind. I was pretty sure I never wanted to have kids, so that was our plan. But despite three forms of birth control in October of 2010, we found out we were pregnant and I was sick, puking every single day. We went to the 20-week ultrasound and learned that our first child was a boy. And as we drove home from the doctor that day, Travis, knowing this story in Genesis 29, suggested we name him Judah to choose, God, or to, choose to praise God despite our fears. And of course, now I can't imagine life without Judah. We adore him and we marvel at his brilliant mind and his boundless energy. He's our Judah. And we praise God, not only for him, but for our Josiah also, who came along a few years later. It wasn't a part of my plan, but now I love our little family and am so thankful for our boys. In closing, I want to draw your attention to one more part of this story. For my entire childhood, hearing this story made me want to be Rachel. After all, she was attractive and she got the boy. But as I've taken a deep dive into this story, I see I had it all wrong. If you jump to Genesis 35, you'll see how things ended for the sisters. There you see Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, and their clan of kids moving back to Jacob's hometown. Rachel is pregnant and she goes into labor mid-journey. But the labor is terrible. And as she takes her last breath, she names her son Ben-Onai, which means son of my trouble. And they bury her by the side of the road. This isn't the dream. Maybe all along, it was actually Leah. Even though the road was rough, in the end, she's the one who found a reason to say, this time, I will praise the Lord. Because unlike the bad fathers in our story today, God is a good father. He doesn't withhold his love from us. Instead, he gives us his son. In Jesus, he has come to rescue and redeem all things. God loves us that much, and his love is enough.